they study the most dangerous diseases known to man. They work in infectious disease institutes or national centers for infection, mainly based in the United States. And they study the most deadly ailments, looking for possible cures. I don't know about you, but I would imagine it's a dangerous job. And I discovered in a little bit of research that they make some precautions, of course, for those doing the task. So, in fact, there are actually zones for secure units in these facilities. Bio-level safety one is just like a high school science classroom. Deals with diseases that don't infect adults. But bio-safety level two and three are a step up and they deal with diseases that infect adults but usually which aren't life-threatening. Measles to tuberculosis. And in these areas, there are some protective measures and clothing suitable to the disease. But then, there is biosafety level four. Not many people get into this area. Highly secure facilities where they deal with life-threatening diseases for which there is no known cure. Ebola virus, dengue fever, Lassa fever, SARS, etc. And to get into this area, you need a great deal of experience and skills. You need high-level clearance. And you need all manner of protective clothing and different things. You know, if this were Jesus' day, the time in which Jesus lived, I think there would be another deadly disease that many people would have added to the list that I just gave you. Though it doesn't get researched much these days, not many people are putting funding behind this kind of research. It's a disease of sin. And there were many who rightly understood the severity of this ailment, that in its full development, this disease always, always leads to death. And so it is not surprising that there were many negative reactions in Jesus' day to the disease of sin and to sinners, those who were perceived to carry it. And there were some who took the view that sin and sinners should be kept well away from them. The good folk, the righteous folk, the healthy folk. If these folks are going to be anywhere, put them in biosafety level four, where we can't get in and they can't get out. Because if we get up close, we'll get contaminated. We might even die eventually from this. That was a group of a view of religious people called the Pharisees. And it was therefore astonishing to them that this man named Jesus, who as we've seen in Luke's Gospel, is proclaiming good news of great joy for all people, is now about to proclaim this message even to sinners. 
Indeed, as it were, he barges right in to biosafety level four without a suit, without any protection. He goes down to where these sinners are. He calls these sinners to himself. He says, join me on my mission. He eats meals with them. And he even appoints them as he begins to establish his church. And the Pharisees are horrified at this. Why do you eat with sinners, they asked. And Jesus said to them this, listen, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And therefore, Jesus was and is the sin doctor. He's the sin doctor. That's what Jesus came to deal with. So, let's look at this section together. If you flip back to chapter 5 is where we're going to begin. And we're going to learn three gracious truths about how the sin doctor deals with sinners. But if you're a sinner tonight, and we're going to see all of us are, you are called despite your defects. You are welcomed despite your detractors. And you are gathered by Jesus despite your differences from each other. Called, welcomed, gathered. And even as we recognize our own sinfulness, I hope tonight that we will see this great encouragement, firstly, that we are called despite our defects. Let's get the context of this. Jesus, from where we last left him, is in the same place in Galilee. In fact, Luke is even more specific. He says Jesus is standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. So it's in the same place where we found him in chapter 4. And it's the same focus that he has. Which, as we've seen, is teaching and preaching the word of God. You remember last week, Rodney unpacked verse 43 of chapter 4. The crowd wants Jesus to multiply healings and exorcisms in their little villages. And Jesus responds, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I, would, I was sent. And therefore, it's no surprise, is it, in light of this commitment that at the outset of chapter 5, in verse 1, we find the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God. Jesus is still teaching the word. It's the same focus. It's the same place. And evidently, it's the same reputation too. If anything, Jesus' popularity has increased. By chapter 5, it's, it's almost fever pitch around him. He's literally being impeded by the crowds. And so in verses 2 and 3, it's a wonderful touch uh, that Jesus, who is God, that Jesus, who is all-knowing, all-powerful, from heaven, is not above the most earthly solution. And he says, there's a couple of boats here. He steps into one of them, says to the bloke who owns the boat, Peter, Simon, could you push this out a little bit? I'm going to use it as a floating pulpit. And it is, of course, just brilliant storytelling, this is all preliminary. Luke is setting up the real focus, which is the encounter between Jesus and the owner of the boat. And this, incidentally, is not the first meeting between Peter and Jesus. 
We learn from John chapter 1 that about a year prior to his Galilean preaching ministry, Simon is introduced to Jesus for the first time by his brother Andrew. And yet now a year on, we take note of the fact that Peter is evidently not following Jesus. And it's even more surprising when we recall the previous chapter. You remember? Jesus healed this sick woman who happened to be his mother-in-law. And Luke tells us that it was in Simon Peter's house. Why does Luke tell us that little detail? So that we know there's been some previous interaction. He's healed his mother-in-law in his house. He knows about Jesus. Even in his home situation. Anyone here? Anyone here seen Jesus at work in their home? In the life of their brother? In the life of their mother? Their grandmother? And yet, you're untouched. Peter has evidently delayed following Jesus. And concurring with this interpretation is the fact that we're specifically told in verse 2 that as the crowd is listening with rapt attention to Jesus preaching, what are the fishermen doing? They're working. They're cleaning their nets. And Peter is evidently preoccupied with business. As many are today. Maybe not paid employment, but just the business of our everyday lives and the busyness with family, with leisure and all our commitments. And it gets to the point where we're not really hearing God's call and we're not really listening to God's word. And if that is you this evening, then you need to know that Jesus won't make it easy for you. No, Jesus comes down to Peter's place of business. Indeed, he barges right into his business. It's no accident that Peter's preach, uh, Jesus is preaching down by the riverside. And already, having acquired Peter's boat, uh, he now orders Peter to head out with him in the boat to fish. Put out into the deep water, verse 4, let down the nets for a catch. Here's the deal, Peter. If you won't come and work with me, I'll come and work with you. Well, needless to say, Peter's not too sure about this. And he raises something of, of an objection. Master, don't you know we've worked hard all night? We haven't caught anything. Not even a couple of fish. Doesn't look good. And yet, even Peter isn't so brash as to deny this popular preacher his request. This man who, after all, has healed his mother-in-law, he's not going to say no to him. And however strange the request, whatever his reservations, Peter complies. Because you say so, I will let down the nets. And you know, it's the same for us if we're Christians. We don't always understand Jesus' methods in full. But we follow his commands and his demands. And when we do, wonderful things happen. Miracles take place. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat. Maybe James and John were still on the shore at a distance so far away, they couldn't hear them even if they shouted, come over. And they filled their boats so full that they began to sink. Wow, this is unquestionably a miracle. And you know, it gets to Peter. It really gets to him. You see, it's one thing to see Jesus perform miracles in general. Even to see him healing one of your own kindred. 
But it's quite another when he comes into your own territory and he does a miracle on your turf. Peter's a fisherman. He knows how remarkable this is. He knows the conditions are bad, terrible even. It's not even night time, the best time to fish, but it's no problem to Jesus. And absolutely overwhelmed, it seems, Peter raises his final objection, which is more heartfelt and genuine, verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Don't you know, Jesus, that I'm a sinner? That's a little strange, isn't it? I think that's a bit strange. It's not what I would expect Peter to say. In light of your power, in light of your greatness, I'm a sinner. Why doesn't he say, I feel weak in light of your power? Why doesn't he say, I feel overwhelmed? But you see, the miracle, like every sign that Jesus performs, points to the greatness of who he is, points to the fact that God himself is working through Jesus. And when people glimpse something of the greatness of God, as it always happens in the Bible, they sense their own unworthiness and sin. It's been a response down the ages, has it not? Abraham, Isaiah, Job, John in his New Testament revelation on his face. When human beings witness the tiniest fraction of the majesty of God, they decry their sin. Woe to me, wailed Isaiah. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Don't you know I'm unclean, says Peter? And notice this. Jesus doesn't contradict him. He doesn't say, Peter, you're not a sinner, don't worry about it. Maybe you're saying that tonight to God. Maybe you know that in your heart. God already knows about it. But notice too that while Peter is right in his diagnosis, he is wrong in his remedy. Peter says, I'm a sinner. Lord, go away from me. Jesus says, you're a sinner. Come to me. I know you're a sinner. I'm calling you anyway, despite your defects. I want you to be with me. I'll take care of your sin. I'll deal with that. I want you to come and work with me and for me. Indeed, says Jesus, actually, this miracle is a picture of what I'm going to do with you and through you. Don't be afraid, verse 10. From now on you will catch men. You're going to, you're going to catch people alive, Peter. That's what it literally says. You're going to catch them alive. These fish, you caught them to death. Now you're going to save people to life. And you know, Christians, believers, if you're, you were here this morning, it's the same message again, I think, that Jesus, God, doesn't call us to complacency. He saves us to serve. He opens up our eyes so that we might be obedient to Him. We haven't been called out to chill out. Blessed to rest up our feet as our world around us tumbles to a lost eternity. We're safe to serve. And we have this wonderful assurance that with Jesus with us, with his power behind us, we will catch fish. We'll see fruit. I wonder if we believe that. 
Do we believe that as we are embarking on this 40 days of prayer and as we take three people to pray for over 40 days, do we believe that some people are actually going to get saved? We should believe it. And so finally, Peter follows Jesus. They pulled their boats up on the shore and they left everything and followed him. This is the catch of their lives. This is a lot of money, folks. And they just leave them there on the shore. Uh, You know, Jesus might not be calling every one of us to give up our business, our full-time employment, our homes, like these men, but he is calling all of us to follow him at a cost, at our cost, and with his resources, despite our defects. Here's the second thing we learn about Jesus dealing with sinners, and it too is wonderful, that we are, secondly, welcomed despite our detractors. As we look forward to verse 27, and this in some ways reaffirms what we've just learned. In some respects it's the same, because Levi is certainly regarded as a sinner. We're told that he was a tax collector. And you shouldn't think of tax collectors today. These individuals were the absolute, the absolute lowest of the low. They were traitors to their country. They were robbers of their countrymen. They were actually working for the occupying force at the time, the Roman government. And what was more, they had this reputation, well-deserved, for taking a little more than they should have, sometimes a lot more. And so they were sinners par excellence, if you like. Indeed, you notice in verse 30, and this happens a couple of times in the Gospels, tax collectors and sinners is used in the same sentence as if they're two birds of a feather. And yet Jesus calls Levi the tax collector. Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. And Levi left Everything. I mean, this is even more remarkable. At least the fishermen, they actually had something to go back to, presumably, if things didn't work out with Jesus. But who's going to re-employ the guy that's left his tax collecting booth right in the middle of his shift? It's great sacrifice. But notice that Levi is not mourning it. He is loving it. He throws this great party at his house He had a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. Just imagine him saying to all his tax collecting friends, because those probably were the only friends that he had, and he says, come and meet this man Jesus. You know, this is the guy I've left everything to follow. Do you think they'd be interested? I think they would. And so they come and Jesus gladly arrives and they eat this meal together and they chat with him and the Pharisees The religious leaders are filled with consternation. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their set complained to his disciples, not to Jesus, but to his followers, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, it's back to dangerous diseases again. It was thought that tax collectors were unclean because of the way that they lived and particularly because they came into regular contact with Gentiles, non-Jews, they were filthy, contaminated. 
A Pharisee would never dream of eating with a tax collector. And if we think about it, this is the opposite problem to the Peter scenario. See, in Peter's case, it's the sinner saying, Jesus, have no part with me. In this case, it is the church people, so to speak, who are saying to Jesus, really you should have nothing to do with these folks. And I regret to say this, but it's still an attitude that is apparent in some churches and in some Christians. Remember a man telling me a story one time of how he came to faith? Came from a very rough background, drugs, alcohol, and finally he, at his wit's end, came to church with his tattoos all over his arms and shoulders and back of his neck. And there wasn't a lot of positive reaction. Uh, He said that when he sat down in the pew, the only person that spoke to him told him that that was their seat. And people didn't seem pleased that this uncouth man was in their respectable service. Thankfully, that man became a Christian, but no thanks to that congregation with a Pharisaic spirit. Some people are are too far beyond the pale. Not in Jesus' mind. And he comes back with this stunning reply and this explanation. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's two sides to this. There's a lovely side to it. The the nice bit is this. Jesus has come to call sinners. That's his task. That's his mission in a nutshell. 1 Timothy 1.15 puts it like this. Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Save sinners. And so Jesus says, if these people are sick, If these people are sinners, guess what? I'm in the right place. Because I'm a sin doctor. Uh, I don't know this experience because I'm not a doctor myself. Uh, I'd be hopeless at trying to diagnose your illnesses. But I, I imagine it's a terrible experience, frustrating, when somebody books up an appointment and they come to you or you're called out to them and when you get into conversation, it is clear They are healthy. Nothing wrong with them. Isn't that frustrating? You don't want to be with healthy people. You want to be with the people that are unwell. And Jesus says, I want to be with the sinners. I want to be with the people that know that they're down and out. But here's the harrowing side of it. That's the nice bit. Here's the harrowing side. The flip side to that is, if you think you are well, says Jesus, I don't want anything to do with you. I have not come to call the righteous or the people that think they are righteous. Someone has called them the unrighteous righteous. Not really righteous. They just think they are. But if you think you're well, if you think you're in a healthy standing with God, spiritually good form, then I won't come calling on you. And how sad a thing it is because the truth is that all of us have the disease. And only if we come to God for grace will the remedy be applied. 
And by the way, because this is a disease, it's not something that you can sort of work your way out of. You know, you can't go for a jog if you've got a critical illness and expect you will be made well. You can't work your way out of it. You need a cure. You need a physician. You need a doctor. You need Jesus. And Christian brothers and sisters, here's the challenge for us. God forbid that we should ever exclude people or shun people or refuse to pray for people because we just think they're a little beyond the fringe of things. But you know, it just gets better and better for sinners in this passage. It's amazing this. We're called despite our defects. We're welcomed despite our detractors. And finally, we're gathered despite our differences. Now, the calling of the disciples has been happening in dribs and drabs. Uh, We've seen the calling of Peter and some of his companions. We've seen Levi's calling. Evidently, there are more people that were called, but we're just not told about it. But now in chapter 6, verse 12, all these callings come together and Jesus forms his team of apostles. He actually begins to form his church with a leadership team in place. And you notice how important this is, that Jesus, before he appoints them, has an all-night prayer meeting by himself. Indeed, it's the only all-night prayer meeting in the whole of the Gospels that we're told about. One time only here, Jesus spent the night praying to God in verse 12. And from what we know about Jesus praying, that we're told about in the Gospels, it's always before very significant events. And I think the reason this was so significant, this occasion, is that Jesus is actually making preparations for after his death. It's not any accident that this appointing of the apostles comes immediately after the first whisperings about the death of Jesus. In the previous uh, section, previous story, Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath, and at the end we read of the Pharisees in verse 11, but they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do with Jesus. Jesus knows that eventually they will work out a plan that will end in his death. And he also knows that after his death, the Father's plan is that the message about him, the gospel of Christ, should be proclaimed in all the the nations of the earth. And therefore, he must get a structure in place. He must get some men ready to prepare for this eventuality, to take this mission forward. And so he appoints these leaders who will be foundational to the early church. It's interesting, the, the process. We're simply told that he called his disciples to him. So there was a larger group of people following Jesus. And out of this group, we don't know how many, maybe it was a fairly large number, he chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles. So there's a wider group, all of whom are disciples, all of whom belong to Jesus, all of whom are very significant, very important in this mission. But out of this group, Jesus chooses 12, no doubt a parallel to the 12 tribes of Israel, and he designates them to lead. Now, of course, apostleship 
in the strict sense, was a unique office. And there is no direct parallel today. But I guess the nearest parallel in the church now is eldership. You see, it is not God's design that disciples of Jesus should just be gathered together in some amalgus mass. Some people have this, this view of the church that if we're all one in Christ, that we actually don't need any leadership. We don't need any structuring. Jesus didn't think that way. And later, when Paul the Apostle was no doubt contemplating his own death and the fact that all the apostles were dying out one by one, he was very keen that elders, the followers from the apostles, should be appointed in every church and in every town. And so let's remind ourselves, first of all, that this is God's good plan for us as his church. It's his good plan that we should be led. That we should be governed, that we should be motivated and organized and shepherded by, we need to see this, very ordinary men in some ways. As we've seen already, imperfect men, not sinless, and perhaps most strikingly of all, I think, very diverse. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, that's Levi, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him. Great variety. Variety of occupations. Fishermen, government officials. Variety of personalities. Quiet Andrew, who brings his friends to Jesus. And Peter, who's very bombastic. And variety of backgrounds. Just imagine a very small team, only 12 people, and two of the twelve is Simon the Zealot, who probably was part of a revolutionary group opposing itself against the Roman occupation, maybe even to the point of violence. And then you've got Levi, who's a tax collector. He actually has signed up to the Romans. How do you think the two of them got on in their apostleship meetings, or whatever they called them? And a variety of legacies as well. You know, Peter, John and Matthew are well known because they wrote famous gospels and famous letters. But some of the other apostles we know virtually nothing about. One of them in tradition is called James the Less. James the Less, because we, we know hardly anything about him. And indeed, the only thing that is similar about these individuals, and I think it's important to mention this, is that they are men. They're men. Which I know it's not a very popular concept in contemporary culture. But let me suggest to you that this is presumably significant. We've seen that in Luke, in his Gospel, that women are hugely prominent. And we've seen that Jesus, contrary to his culture, is massively pro-women. The way that he deals with women is revolutionary in a culture where they had no status and no standing whatsoever. And yet, Jesus, who doesn't follow convention, Jesus, who uh, isn't afraid to break the odd taboo, decides here that it's an all-male apostleship. There's no women apostles. And it seems to me, and I leave it for your consideration, that in Luke's Gospel, Jesus raises the status of women, he raises the status 
but he does not reverse the roles of male and female gender. He raises the status, but he doesn't reverse the roles. He doesn't say, well, let's go half and half. Six women apostles, six male apostles, or even just one woman apostle, just as a, as a token gesture. Be that as it may, the important thing is that these gathered individuals come together to provide the leadership for the early church. And there's great wisdom here as the different personalities and different temperaments and different strengths and weaknesses balance each other out. You know, brothers and sisters, many of us here, including most of the men, are not elders in the church. We're maybe never going to be called to eldership. But let us, like Jesus, respect this office and let us pray as Jesus did for the leaders of our church. It's God's good plan for us. So Jesus has a remarkable way of dealing with sinners, has he not? He calls them despite their defects. He welcomes them despite their detractors. And he gathers them to himself. And he points leaders among them who come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Despite their differences. Maybe because of their differences. But I want to finish by asking a very important question. Very important question. What gives Jesus the right to act this way? You've been asking that question in your head throughout the sermon. Surely if God is holy and pure, which he is, and if Jesus is God's messenger to represent him, which he is, then isn't it wrong for Jesus to welcome and, and gather and call sinners? Actually, aren't the Pharisees right? Jesus, here's the thing, Jesus has the right because later in this gospel, He's going to do something permanent about sin. Jesus, in fact, is going to take the disease upon himself to provide the cure. Here's how the New Testament puts it. God made him who had no sin. Jesus wasn't a sinner himself. He was pure. But God made him to be sin for us. Where did he do that? He did that on the cross. Remember, where he was crucified, where he bled and suffered and died. On that cross, says Paul, his, our sin was placed on him and his righteousness was given to us. You see, the sin doctor ultimately became the sin bearer. In Isaiah's wonderful words, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. That's what gave him the right. He died for your sins. He took your disease. Have you responded to that? Have you made an appointment with the doctor? Have you prayed and said, Jesus, I need you to do something about my sin? And if so, are you thankful about that? 
And are you sharing him? Are you taking the doctor out to share him with those that need to be healed? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do feel somewhat like Peter. We feel a sense of awe as we view your Son and the way that he deals with us in our sin. And Lord, there's a part of us that feels deep, deep down that we are unworthy to ever receive your grace. But we thank you, you've given us this record. Thank you that we've been able to see that Jesus calls people that are sinners. So Lord, would you drive out any sense of self-righteousness in our hearts. And would you help us to come humbly, as Peter did. And to put all our faith and all our stake in Christ. And Lord, help us to be thankful for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.